The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Bear with me. So if, is that, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be a people who are in one accord of the same mind, fully joined together as a people, sharing together in Christ and in the Spirit. Well, that's your intention for us. Those are Paul's words written by the Spirit. It's your intention for us that we be a people like that, that this body be a body like that. Would you bring that to pass? Would you use this morning, Lord, as a little help down that road to build in us this kind of attitude individually and corporately? We would be a people who are one, we're united, and then that that unity would have an effect on others around us who look on and observe and are influenced by it. This is near to your heart, God. Would you make it near to ours? Would you inhabit this place, Lord, by the Spirit? Give life to my words, to give clarity to my thinking, and to give clarity to the listening here. Lord, inhabit this place. Teach us, guide us, convict us, conform us. Make us lovers of your word responders and doers of your word. Make us a community for the sake of others. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for us, for all of those who would eventually believe in his name through the word of the apostles. Part of what he prayed was that we might all be one so that the world would know that he had, that the Father had indeed sent him. He prayed that love for one another would so characterize us that non-believers would look on and would see in our midst love and grace and glory and goodness and would know God is among them. What they say about Christ is true. He has come from the Father. This would mark us. It would be characteristic of us. Community for the sake of testimony. That was what he prayed. John 17. That same concept is what we're looking at today at the end of Acts chapter 4. Community for the sake of testimony. The last several weeks we've been in Acts 3 and 4 and we've been looking essentially at one main event and all of the fallout from it. The beginning of chapter 3, Peter and John on their way to the temple to pray come upon a man who was lame from birth, has been sitting there for years and years and years. 
And in the name of Jesus, by the power of the name of Jesus, they heal him. And he stands up, totally healed and excited. He leaps around and praises God and draws a huge crowd, of course. They wonder what's going on. Peter preaches to them the explanation. He asserts, Christ Jesus has come. Christ Jesus has done this. And by faith in his name alone, you too, you all, you also can be healed. Not just physically, but you can be healed spiritually. In him alone, in faith in his name alone, sin is washed away. You're brought into the presence of God and healed. That's his message, and he preaches that with great effect. People are listening and responding, and the authorities hate that, and so they move quickly to shut him down. They arrest him and John, throw him in prison. The next day they warn him to not do that anymore or else, and then they release him. And they carry this message then to the believers, last week's passage. They carry this message to the larger group of believers. They go home, and then they all together lift their voices to God in prayer, calling out to him and recalling his absolute sovereign control over all things, the one who made everything and reigns over everything. And they recognize the one who predestined and brought to pass by his power this rebellion that they're looking at. You brought that to pass. Lord, bring to pass the rest of your plan. They see Psalm 2 has begun to be fulfilled. Lord, bring to pass the rest of Psalm 2 where you give everything to your son and put down all rebellion. Do that. Spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth as you declared you would through us. So give us boldness to carry out your plan. That's their prayer. And God answers by filling them with the Spirit. Verse 31 of chapter 4, which brings us to our text for this morning. God answers the prayer, fills them with the Spirit. And what we see here now is a summary passage, what Spirit-filled community looks like. Luke's done this sort of thing before in this book. If you were to look back at chapter 2, you see that he there also gives a blow-by-blow account of, of an evangelistic event, the filling of the Spirit, and what happens in this sermon. And then he closes off chapter 2 with a, a summary statement about what this community is like. Same thing here in chapter 4. Blow-by-blow-by-blow-by-blow. Summary statement. He's depicting for us what Spirit-filled community looks like. Let me read the text Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. passage is giving us a description of the full number of believers. And if you consider that at this point, the number of believing men alone, not counting the women and children, is the men number over 5,000. This is a very large church by this time. 
So this is a lot of people who are like this. A very large group. Probably not every single person, but characteristically the group looked like this. They were marked by something. And it was this marked them in an ongoing sense. This isn't just a, a snapshot of a little window in time. So the grammar throughout the passage indicates that what we're looking at is regular, habitual behavior. This was their nature, constantly, habitually. They are regularly of one heart and soul, regularly denying that their own possessions were their own, regularly counting everything as being held in common. This is what they were like. This is what a spirit-filled community is like. The passage describes what the the internal body was like. They were united in in heart and soul. Heart and soul are not two different things there. It's not saying that they were united in heart and they were also united in soul. It's just saying they were internally together. They they met geographically together all the time, whether in little house groups or in the temple to pray. But he's saying that in addition to being geographically together, they were together in here. And the, the internal uniting played itself out in a very tangible way, materially. Their money, their possessions, they held that in unity also. They held that in common. So the internal relationships were like, and the passage also describes the external relationships, how they related to non-believers on the outside. The apostles were preaching with great power, and great grace was upon them. The preaching in power that, that least leads to conviction and more than likely leads to many conversions. The church is growing during this period. People are hearing the gospel, coming to believe it, and great grace rests upon the community. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word grace, we think God. Grace comes from God, and, and that's true. But the same word can also be translated favor. There was great favor on them. And looking back at the, at the passage that's parallel to this at the end of chapter 2, says that great favor was on the people from the crowds. I think what we're supposed to be reading here is that they were preaching in great power, and in converse, the crowds were looking on them with great favor. They respected them, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it, considering what they were preaching. Peter constantly, the Christ who was raised, had to be raised because you killed him. He's constantly preaching that, and they respect him is remarkable so we've got the description of the internal nature and the external relationships and the last couple verses are about barnabas who is an example of how they held all things in common he's actually serving here as a bridge into chapter five barnabas is the positive example in chapter five ananias and sapphira are the negative example we'll see that probably in the beginning of january we'll come back to that passage they their behavior their threatens this respect that the outsiders have towards them. And so God's going to move swiftly to deal with that. But that's coming up in January. For our purposes here this morning, the passage that we're focusing on is centered on unity. The nature of this community. It's describing what it was like, and it is prescribing it to us. This is not just history so that you know. I've said this before, but God doesn't write FYI history. He's writing history with a point, and we see how this is repeatedly told to us and how the grammar indicates it's an ongoing thing. We are supposed to be like this as well. We're supposed to be like this community. It's what God intends. So here's the main point that I'm working towards this morning. 
spirit-filled, sacrificial unity. Picture that. Spirit-filled, sacrificial unity is what God intends for us. For us and for others. I know it's really long. Spirit-filled, sacrificial unity is God's goal for us, for us, and for others. There's those two parts there. Why does he want this? Why does he want us to be characterized by this? Why does he want this atmosphere? For our sake, but also for the sake of others. We're going to work on this main point through, through three sub-points. Begin with the first one. And this first point is by far the longest. To follow this one through. It's what God intends. God intends that this atmosphere of sacrificial unity mark us. It's after a sacrificial unity in our midst. That's what we are to be like. What's supposed to characterize us regularly, habitually. Begins in verse 32, in the heart. One in heart and soul. Unity of spirit. What's that built on? Obviously, first, critically, it's built on doctrine. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. We are to be united first in here based on truth. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are not united with and cannot be united with anybody or any group that disagrees with us on one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. You might find somebody or find a group that uses all the same words, that talks about Jesus, that talks about baptism, that talks about faith, talks about salvation. But if you look more closely, all the definitions are different. What do you mean by J-E-S-U-S? Let's talk about that. And when we examine it and find it to be different, that they're not talking about the Jesus of the Scriptures, we are not united and cannot be united until the definitions have changed. Then we are one. But assuming that's happened and that we actually agree on what we mean by these terms and actually believe them, then we are united with them. If you believe that, you believe what the Bible teaches about those things, then we are Christians and we are united. This is a fact. That's part of what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 4. I'm united with you. Even if I don't know your name, I'm united with you. Based on doctrine. It's the foundation there, but, but surely what this passage is talking about goes beyond that. It goes beyond just a formal, doctrinal, truth-based unity. And it moves on to something that's affectional. That's, that's relational. That's alive. That's real. That's what he's getting at there. You might put it like this. They were united in heart as well as in head. Not just cold facts, but there's a love, a preferencing of one another. A holding together, a, a common goal, common agenda, common loves. For these people, and for us, Philippians 2 is real. Characterizes what we're actually like, not what we say we're supposed to be like. It's what we are actually like in this new community. Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, harmony. No rivalry, no conceit, no pride, but instead humility. 
a humbling of oneself, a lowering of oneself in relation to the other, a considering others as more important than oneself, a dying to, a setting aside and a rejecting of your own personal agendas, your own goals, your own right to be regarded properly, setting that all aside and saying, instead, I live to see you become all that you are supposed to be in God's sight. Philippians 2 is getting at that kind of an attitude, a kind of a heart supposed to be real for us, not out of pride. Careful with that. We all know people, and we probably all have been, the kind of person who wants to act humble so that I'll look humble. That's not humility. That's pride. That's still me concerned about me how I look. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to actually be humble. To actually consider others more important than us. Not look like we consider others more important than us. This is what we are supposed to be. This is what oneness looks like. Is that you? Are you like that? Is Philippians 2 real for you? Harmony, humility, one accord, love, passion for others. This can get hard, especially when you disagree with somebody about something. That's actually the time when it's tested, is it not? It's very easy to be one with somebody if they love you and are all about you. It's when the disagreement arises that this is tested. Are you like this when people disagree with you? Are you joined to this body, connected, caring about people here, brothers and sisters and family with them? Let's be honest. Some here right now even are in the building but are not in us. There are people who attend church here regularly that we don't even know one another's names. That's true. Why do you live like that here? Why? I used to think that that old Simon and Garfunkel song was pretty cool, the one that goes, I am a rock, I am an island. Rock feels no pain. I used to like that song. That's a tragic song. But there are some of us here who live like that in this body. I am an island in the midst of a sea. Nobody knows me. I don't know anybody else. That's how I make it. I want that. It's safe. You're right. It's safe. A rock feels no pain. And a rock is not alive. You have to be, for your own good, let alone because of the requirements of the Bible, for your own good, you have to be part of us. We need you. You need us for your life. Immerse yourself in this body. Give yourself to it. But let's keep being honest. Some of us here are deeply immersed in this body, but kind of like a thorn is immersed in flesh. Piercing, irritating, demanding attention, sometimes causing an infection, causing other people, frankly, to wish that you'd be removed. Why are you like that? 
Do you notice that everywhere you go, you have problems? Maybe the common denominator is you. Maybe you should repent of something, of how you communicate with people, of how you interact with them and say, I'm tired, God help me. I'm tired of being a thorn. I instead want to be immersed in this group as a balm. I don't want to be on the surface. I want to be in, but I want to be rubbed in as something that soothes, that covers over cracks and pains and hurts. I want to be involved in that way in people's lives. God help me. I don't even know sometimes what's wrong with me, but I am an irritant. Let's be honest. If that's you, move on past thornness to balmness, please. For your sake and for ours. We need you. You need us. But we need you humble. Looking out for the concerns and needs of others. Given to them and advancing them. Not yourself. When that happens, that's a sweet thing. Oneness of heart and soul is a sweet thing. Most of us in some place or another have probably experienced that, and it is beautiful. I'm not just talking about like you hold hands and sing kumbaya and then go home with a warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm talking about community that is real, sometimes confrontational, always loving Grace born to you from God through them. It's a sweet thing. Want it. Beseech God for it. Oneness in heart and soul. Obviously though, in this passage, that oneness in heart and soul is displayed in a particular way. Money. Financial oneness. In verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 34, 35. No one had any need because the believers liquidated all their assets and took care of it all. Regularly, habitually, again and again and again. That's what this community was like. Oneness in heart and soul led to some pretty radical financial oneness. What exactly are we talking about here? As discussed back in chapter 2, and if you want a little more on this, I can refer you to that sermon, but back there, a little synopsis of that. We looked at this and and realized that some Christians teach that that passage in chapter 2, this one here in chapter 4, they teach that it's indicating that there's supposed to be some sort of a a communal pot, a, a common financial pot into which everybody gives all the stuff they own, and then from which the apostles administer it to meet all the needs. And it's easy to see how Christians can can come to that conclusion. You can read 32 and 35 like that. But, I think that upon closer examination, that's not what's going on here. In fact, verses 32 and following indicate that private ownership still was in play. No one said that anything that he had was his own. But they said, this belongs to all of us. Regularly and habitually, they said that. To paraphrase, Nobody said, what's mine is mine. What they said was, what's mine is ours. They constantly said that. They still had things. And when you move on, they regularly, habitually sold things when the need arose. You can't regularly and habitually sell things if you already sold them all once. If it was already all in the pot, I don't have anything left to sell. In fact, 
private ownership still is the way this community is functioning. There's no communal pot. Dodge the bullet there. Don't have to give up my stuff. Thank goodness. Yes, you do. You still do. The same attitude that marked them is supposed to mark you. Radical, sacrificial unity. You are still required regularly and habitually to say, none of my stuff is mine only. It's ours. Because it's not really mine ultimately. It's His. Entrusted to me, placed in my open fists, flat on my hands so it can be moved off easily, placed here for distribution according to God's agenda. God's principles, God's plan. He wants to pass it through my hands to lots of other people, especially his body that he cherishes and wants to provide for. It's in my pocket for you. I have to give up everything, and so do you. It's still yours, but it's ours. Don't say it's just mine. It's yours for the body. Is that your mindset? And are you thinking about 100% of your stuff, not just 10%? The 10%, the idea of the tithe, is a very dangerous idea for us. It comes from the Old Testament where the Israelites were commanded to give a tenth of all that they made to the Lord. We bring that into the New Testament and we think, tenth of all you give. And the danger is that we then will think, and the other 90% is mine. It's not. Jesus never lowered the bar, always raised it. He, talk, he talks in Sermon on the Mount about murder. You've read, thou shalt not kill. I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder. The bar goes way up. You've read, thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The bar goes way up. You've read, give 10%. Five's good enough. That's not, no way. Jesus does not think like that. He thinks way up, all of it, in totality, all of you, everything. None of your stuff is your stuff. It's in your hands, but it belongs to Him and it belongs to His people. This can get hard. Your car, your house, your money, your retirement account, none of that is purely yours. Now, yes, God has given it to you to provide for the needs of your family. For sure. Absolutely. And to provide for the needs of his larger family. It needs to be your mindset. And to be honest, if you look around our church, it would be easy to give us pretty good marks in this in some regards. Because looking around our church, many of the the physical needs of people are met here. We're in America. We're on the East Bench. Most of our church has most of its needs met. The giving to our benevolence fund is, is healthy. We have a sum of money to meet legitimate needs that come to our attention. So we could look around and say, we're doing pretty, pretty good. And in a way, we are. I, I commend the congregation for that. But don't become complacent. Think about it like this. Let's lift up our eyes for a moment beyond just our local body here. Because of the global age that we live in, more than ever, we are closer to the universal body of Christ. 
Times in the past, we wouldn't have any idea what's going on with Christians in faraway lands. But now, it's a click away. We're connected to them in, in unique ways now. Our little church right here is connected to and has some responsibility for the welfare of the larger body of Christ. I'm convinced that we who live here in the West, I don't mean the Western U.S., I mean the Western world, we who live here in the West, in the lap of wealth unknown in the history of the world, unknown, we will give an account for that. We will give an account for how or whether we applied this passage and others like it to the whole family of God. Do our brothers and sisters around the world starve? I mean literally starve. While we here give our 10%, look around and say, I guess the needs are met, and then go out and buy the newest, shiniest, coolest thing. Put it in our garage or in our living room. Brothers and sisters, we don't often think like this, but there will come a day when we will wish that we had. Not because we're going to stand under the condemnation of God. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. None. But you will wish that you had thought about that. We will wish we had thought about that because one day we will realize just how much brothers and sisters of ours suffered while the money to alleviate their suffering stayed in our pockets, in our bank accounts. We're going to be sorry because one day we're going to meet them and we will mourn as we hear their stories. We'll grieve also for the lost opportunity that we had. I could have met that, but I didn't. What I've lost out on, what you suffered, I'm sorry. Don't wait till then. Think about it now. Here's the truth in advertising part of this. I hesitate to bring this up because I don't have any idea what to do about it. I don't know. I, I don't have a, therefore do this. I don't know. For myself or for us as a church. It's a huge thing. We do a little bit about this here. like We are involved with Voice of the Martyrs at different times and we've from time to time, fill out those action packs that are providing tangible needs for other Christians suffering, in our case, in the Sudan and in Iraq. A little thing. The problem's much bigger than that. I don't know what to do about it. Many of the compassion ministries that we know of, the Christian compassion ministries, are focused on compassionate evangelism, which is a good thing, a fine thing. You should support that, be involved in that. Great. That's not exactly what we're talking about, though. This is about needs within the body. Maybe you know a foreign mission agency that has ties to local bodies that have needs. A mission agency that, that our uh, church's mission board is looking at, REMI, I'm sure could put us in touch with some nationals who have financial needs. Maybe there are other things that you know. But I don't really know what to say. Here's what you should do. But I think before that, there has to be a mindset change within us that that's something I need to think about. That kind of sacrificial unity must mark me, must mark our body, and must mark our global body. We have some responsibility to this body and to that body. That kind of change has to happen in us. We have to become convinced of that, and there has to be that kind of unity of heart and soul welling up in us. Where does that come from? 
That brings us to the second point. He requires, he expects, he intends sacrificial unity to mark his body. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of change come from? Here's the second point. God provides heart-changing power to produce that. God provides heart-changing power. And it's a good thing that He does because heart-changing power is what is needed. We have to have a heart change where something actually grips me and I say, yes, I want to respond to that. Something must happen in here. Heart must be changed. God's the one who does that. This point is not actually in this text it's in the setup to this text, verse 31. Where does this kind of community come from? Spirit filling. The filling of the Spirit produces this. If you look back at chapter 2, where does the type of community come from? Same thing again. Spirit filling. Philippians 2. Where does all of that that we read come from? And what verse 1 says, there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, then be like this. The Spirit given from God is what provides the change that we're looking at, that we're required to be, to be like. So the question really, the point of action really initially is not be sacrificially unified. Be one. Love. That's not the first point of action. The first point of action underneath that is be filled with the Spirit. And then respond in these ways. You see that? You've got to be filled with the Spirit. So that's really the question. Are you filled with the Spirit? Or are you filled with yourself? Those are the two options. Are you filled, directed, empowered, driven by, controlled by the Spirit or by yourself? Think this through. Do you find yourself often in discord, frustration? Do you find you're highly aware of other people's problems and you're letting everybody else know it. Gossiping. Complaining. Are you filled with envy, with jealousy, rivalry, conceit, pride, to put over all those words? Are you sexually obsessed you angry. Not 24-7. Nobody's any of that 24-7. But regularly. Those things and others like them describe you. You could look through Galatians 5. Before the fruit of the Spirit comes the fruit of the flesh. Those things that I just listed off. As that characterizes you as a whole or maybe in a little period, you're not filled with the Spirit. You're filled with self. Yourself, your flesh is calling the shots. Repent. While you're in that place, you have no hope of being involved in this sacrificial unity. You're actually the opposite of it. You must repent and turn and say, Spirit, change me. Take control of me. I don't want to be like that. It's wrong. May He give you eyes to see that it's wrong and that it hurts you. 
May he give you eyes to see the folly of that. The life that you're trying to build by yourself does not work. It brings you pain. It leaves you isolated, constantly frustrated, always seeking and never satisfied, not at rest. You cannot fill your heart by yourself. May he give you eyes to see that, to be convicted of that, and may he give you eyes to see the glory of Christ and how sweet it is to be filled with and directed by him, to be empowered by him. He can and will fill you. He gives life and hope and peace. He produces accord, not discord. Grace, unity. Turn to him. The Spirit must fill you. You must say, have your way in me. I yield to you whatever it takes. You ask him for that. As Luke 11 says, he will give you the Spirit. He will fill you. He is radically interested in that. Come to him and he will fill you with the Spirit. He will change and refine you, sanctify you. There's an old illustration that's used often in marriage, but it works for all kinds of relationships. You've probably heard this. There's a, a triangle with God at the top. And if you're over here and I'm over here, the closer that we come to God, the closer we come to each other. That's what this is getting at. When the Spirit fills you and the Spirit fills me, we draw together as we draw towards God. The Spirit is God's means of changing your heart to produce in us, then, sacrificial unity. And when that happens, it is a sweet thing. That's where that desirable unity comes from. It's God's love to give that to us. He wants to give it to you. Yield to the Spirit. Sacrificial unity is God's intention for His people, for us. And now the third point, for others. Verses 32 and 34 are showing us the sacrificial unity that comes from the Spirit. And right in the middle is verse 33, which teaches us this last point. God intends to use this community atmosphere that we're talking about, this sacrificial unity, God intends to use that to impact those around us. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection and great grace was upon them all. Great power, even though they're preaching this extremely non-seeker-sensitive message, they're not shrinking back from any of the gospel. They're declaring the whole gospel and the Spirit rests on them and gives them power and people still respect them. They have high regard for them. Now, why is that verse here in this passage? Is it a non sequitur? Something that does not follow in sequence? Because before it, it's talking about the community and how they didn't regard anything as their own. And after it, it's again back on, on how they're dealing financially, not regarding anything as their own. And in the middle, you've got verse 33. Is it a non sequitur? Like if I were to say, here at EV Free, we have great community. We have a wonderful, loving family. And we own a 15-passenger white van. 
And this community is experienced in small groups where people get to know one another deeply, spend a lot of time with each other, eat together, share together, confront sin, give comfort and encouragement. Sweet. And you're thinking, the middle part about the van was sort of about the church, but the community before and the community at, how does that relate? Is that what's going on here? Because he's got the community and the money, and the community and the money, and in the middle, the, the preaching and the favor. How does this relate? It does relate. It's not a non sequitur. And if you're reading the NAS, you have an advantage here, because you can see in writing what we, the rest of us have to see conceptually. The NAS accurately and helpfully translates a very important connector word, the beginning of verse 34. Here's how it reads. And great, end of verse 33, and great grace was upon them all for, for there was not a needy person among them, or as many as were owners of lands, etc. You see the important connector there. Preaching in power, great grace upon them because they took care of their own. For. It's an important word there. That's a remarkable statement because what it's teaching us is that what happens in here, how we are amongst ourselves, taking care of our own, affects out there. It affects our testimony and our reputation. What it's saying is that community is missional. Community relates to mission. What we've been sent to do. Sent to reach people, to, to go out to them, to carry a message to them. And what we are like in here matters very much for that. It's exactly what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, may they be one that the world may know this is true. They were living like that. We are supposed to as well. When we live unified like this, we will have power in witness. Why? Well, think about it. Where does power and witness come from? From my persuasion? From my wise words? From my cleverness? No. From the Spirit. The Spirit gives power. So when I go out and I'm looking for power and witness, or when you're looking for power and witness, what you need is Spirit. Come with me and accompany these words and give them life. Bring them, bring them to... To, to live in this person's mind and heart and to strike. Spirit, do that. And he is not going to come if I have previously said, you know, leave me alone in regards to all this stuff about community. But come with me while I witness. You know, I understand what you're saying about giving my life to others and being humble and not conceited and no rivalry and no pride. You know, no thanks. But I would love success and witness. Come with me on that. Life as a whole. You can't grieve the Spirit, drive Him away, and then say, stop back by at 4 o'clock on Tuesday. I'm going to have an evangelistic appointment then. No. Now, yes, God does use sinful people like us, thank goodness. But the degree to which you plot this out is the degree to which it's not going to work. Surrendering to the Spirit in this area of life, is surrendering to the Spirit in life. He'll come with you if He is with you, if He is controlling you, filling you. He'll be with you wherever you walk. If 
power and witness because you had the Spirit. Moreover, when we're living unified like this, when we go to share our faith in the power of the Spirit, talking to somebody, we'll be speaking to an audience that either already has or very easily can look over our shoulder around back at the community we come from and say, this seems to work. This has some sort of oomph in it. I look around this guy, hear the message. I hear tons of messages, for goodness sakes, tons of messages. But this one, as I look around and check it out, does something really interesting. In the world, you might find somebody, maybe even two somebodies, who would give everything they had to meet the needs of strangers. And if you've got a church of thousands and thousands of people, there are a lot of strangers whose needs are being met here. That's why they're giving the, they're giving the money to the apostles, because the believers don't individually know. They say, you know, you know what the need is, you know who it is, you administer it, I don't know. They're doing this for people who are virtual strangers in many cases. And the whole flow of the time, time frame of the book of Acts reveals this is probably going on for years. We don't get that easily by reading this passage, but this is a long time happening. Somebody in the world can look at us and say, I see what you guys are doing for strangers over a long period of time, habitually, regularly, again and again and again and again and again. That is remarkable. That does not happen in the world. Maybe it happens for people who want to look good, who feel like they, they have to check off a box to be right, to be religious. Maybe they'll toe the line a little bit, but you guys seem to be joyous about this. To do it without obligation, to do it deliberately declaring it does not save you, but you still do it. Weird. And you don't just do it from your excess, like you're a billionaire and so you can give away a few million dollars, who cares? You sell your house and your car and you liquidate your bank account. Weird. All of you do it regularly. And the one common denominator seems to be this Jesus that you're telling me about. Yeah, you're constantly busting me with the fact that I killed him. I got that. That's hard to swallow. But you also tell me that he lives to forgive and change a person and a people. And as I look around, that seems to be happening. I should think about this. You preach in the power of the Spirit to a people who have something to look at. People who are persuaded something's different here. The world longs for this kind of community. And no one but Jesus gives it. Nothing but the Spirit in the heart produces this. That kind of power only comes from God. It cannot be found anywhere else. People long for it. And if and when they see it here, it will give power. It will give favor to us as messengers. There's a quote from a, I read in a book from a, a Roman emperor who was no friend of Christianity. He said, those godless Galileans, Christians were called godless because they, they rejected the existence of all the pantheon of gods. They were called atheists, remarkably. Christians were called atheists. Those godless Galileans care for our poor as well as their own. He grudgingly has to admit 
We don't care for our own poor. They care for their own poor. And in fact, they actually care for our poor too. That's something. I mean, they're godless and I'm going to persecute them, but that at least is something. This kind of community has a positive effect on our witnessing. It adorns the gospel of God. It dresses up the gospel in clothes that people can see, respect, and marvel at. It makes it look beautiful, not because it needs to be beautified, but because it needs to be seen to be beautiful. This kind of community will do that to the gospel message that we're carrying. It lifts up Christ as the common denominator that produces this kind of change. It glorifies Him. It shows people the truth and it draws them. Do not live for yourself, robbing God of glory and sending people away. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.